We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. A reading from Genesis 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful, I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, and to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring." Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. God also said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take just a moment to pray together. You can take your seats. Let's pray. Father, we've been singing about these incredible truths that the resurrection is true, that there there is life even after death, that you are the God who sees us and who loves us and who reigns over us and who is near to us. All these things, and yet what we really need now is for you to come and make them real, not just in our heads, but real in our hearts. You know that we come from so many different places and backgrounds this morning. Some of us come into this room filled with belief, with a sense of your nearness and your presence in our lives. Some of us come filled with unbelief, wondering if these things could actually ever be true. God, we, we come from so many places, but if we know ourselves rightly, we, we all come from the same place, and that is we are more broken than we know, and we are more in need of your grace than we could ever really fathom or articulate. And so we ask now that you would come and meet us right there in that place as, as broken, messy people who need a God of grace to come and speak to them, who need words of hope who need words of life, 
who need the words that only you have. And so, Holy Spirit, would you come now and make your word alive to us, make your son more beautiful to us, we pray, Father, in Christ's name, amen. Well, good morning and welcome. Uh, I know what you're thinking. Circumcision. Okay. How are we going to get a sermon out of this? How strange. How awkward. How, how could this possibly have any relevance to my life? Let me tell you, this passage has all sorts of relevance to your life. Uh, if you were with us last week, you know that we've been going through a series uh, in the life of Abraham. And last week we were in Genesis chapter 16, and we saw what is really probably the greatest misstep in Abraham's life. Uh, God had made all these promises to Abraham and Sarah. He promised to give them a child. He promised to give them land. He promised to make them into a great nation. And none of those promises have yet to come true. We're about 25 years in at this point since God made those promises in Genesis 12. None of them had come true. So Abraham and Sarah had this great idea that Abraham would sleep with their servant Hagar and make a child. And it was probably... Uh, you know, as you look at Abraham's life, this was probably his moment of greatest failure. And Genesis chapter 16, the very last verse of Genesis 16 reads like this. It says, Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Now, we come to chapter 17 today. And you need to know that, you know, chapter, chapter and verse delineations in the Bible were not originally there. They got added after the fact. So we're really meant to read the last verse of chapter 16 in combination with this very first verse in chapter 17. Now look at the first verse. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him. So, so the last verse of chapter 16 says, when Abraham was 86 years old, and then the very next verse says, when Abraham was 99 years old. Now that's a third, I'm, I'm from South Carolina, we're not at the top of the educational chart, you know, but, but I do know that 99 minus 86 is 13. And so you have a 13 year gap in Abraham's life between the end of chapter 16 and the beginning of chapter 17. And the question is, you know, surely, surely there were a lot of things that happened in Abraham's life in those, 18, in those 13 years. Why would Genesis take us from what happened with Hagar in Genesis 16 to God appearing to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17? Isn't that interesting? Here's my thesis for today. My thesis for today is that Genesis 17 is all about, it is all about teaching us what to do with your failure. See, and that is something that has relevance to every single person in this room. How you handle failure really is the acid test for whether or not you know you're really a Christian. Several months ago, I got an email from somebody in our, in our congregation who'd been exploring Christianity. And they emailed me and they said, I think, I think I'd like to talk to you about getting baptized. 
But my only hesitation is I'm afraid that I'm going to fail God. And I wrote them back and I said, dear friend, let me assure you, you will most definitely fail God. And let me assure you that that is most definitely not a reason to not get baptized. The question is not, will you fail God? The question is, how will you handle it when you do? Because most of us, we don't, we, we don't really know what to do with our failure. And I'm not talking about the kind of failure where you, you bomb a test or you drop the ball at work or you can't get the wordle word of the day, which is terribly frustrating, still bugging me from yesterday. But some of you don't know what I'm talking about. Others of you, you're jiving. You're just trying to be, play it cool. But all right, you're as addicted as I am. Anyways. I'm not talking about that kind of failure. I'm talking about when you really blow it. When you betray other people and you betray yourself and you betray God and you find yourself looking in the mirror thinking, this is not the person I want to be. Now the question is, where does that kind of failure, what does that kind of failure do to you? Does it drive you to God or does it drive you away from Him? See, we have so many responses to failure. Sometimes we excuse it and we say, well, you know, nobody's perfect and God's job is to kind of cut me some slack. Sometimes we run from it and we say, I can't, I cannot, I cannot deal with this right now. And so we, we medicate it and we numb it through substance, through Netflix, through work, through exercise. Sometimes we just kind of wallow in our shame and you say, you know, I'm just, look, look what a terrible person I am. Sometimes we, we pull up our bootstraps and we say, God, I'll do better next time. I'm going to make it up to you. We say so many things, but here's the question. What does God say to us? This text tells us that he says three things. He tells us who we are. He tells us what to do. And he tells us how both of those things are possible. He tells us who we are. He tells us what to do. And he tells us how both of those things are possible. So first, he tells us who who we are. The first thing that I want you to notice is that God is the one. Is my mic up? Okay. All right. There we go. God is the one who comes to Abraham in this passage. Do you see this? God takes the initiative. Look at verse 1. It says that the Lord appeared to Abraham. That means that after Abraham's great failure of Genesis 16, it is not Abraham who seeks out God, but it is God who seeks out Abraham. Now, have you ever experienced in a relationship the silent treatment? You hurt someone. You wrong someone. And so now they won't talk to you. You know, we've all experienced this and we've actually all done it. And sometimes we think, well, God, this is what God is like. You know, when we mess up, God gives us a silent treatment. God is not like that. God comes to Abraham. And not only does he come to Abraham, but look at this. He gives him a new name. Verse 5, no longer shall you be called Abram but your name will be Abraham. Now this whole series, we've been calling him Abraham just to make it easy on all of us, mainly the ones who are preaching. But, but he wasn't always Abraham. Right here, he goes from Abram 
to Abraham. And it seems so subtle to us, but it was not subtle to the original readers. Because names in the ancient Near East, they're, they're actually way more significant then than they are now. Your name was your identity. It had a lot to say about who you were and what you were about. And so everyone would have known, what is God doing here? He's not just giving Abraham a new name. He's giving him a new identity. And I just want to pause here for just a moment because identity is something that is talked about a lot right now. We talk about uh, racial identity, cultural identity, political identity, sexual identity, gender identity. Everyone is asking the question, who am I? And who gets to determine the answer to that question? And, and what's really interesting about this is there have been a lot of books that have been written about this, the kind of the shift that's been happening in the way that we think, modern people think about identity now. One of those books is a book called All Things Shining. It's written by two, uh, two college professors, one who's at Harvard and one who is at UC Berkeley. And, and the, the book is basically, a, it's a summary of Western philosophy. And, and what they do in this book is they summarize the shift that has happened in the way that we think about identity. And they summarize it like this. They say, in the Middle Ages, people could not help but experience themselves as determined or created by God. They assumed that God's plans encompassed their lives the way that we assume the laws of physics do. But for the past hundred years or so, we have lived in a secular age. And that does not mean that people are not religious. It means that individuals have to find or create their own meaning. The point that they're making, and it's a true one, is that as society has become more and more secular, we have begun to wrestle more and more with the question of identity. Because if there is no God to define you, if there's no, nothing kind of transcendent or outside of you to, 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 to define you, then you, who defines you? You. Identity becomes something that you create or you achieve. And how do you do that? Well, we do it in all sorts of ways. We do it through beauty. We do it through career. Or, you know, becoming a parent. And you see, creating your own identity, it, it sounds so liberating. But there is one major problem with it. And the problem is this is that if you build your identity on anything that you do or you achieve, when failure comes, you know what happens? Your identity crumbles. It falls apart. Uh, for those of you who are uh, MMA fans, you may remember Ronda Rousey. And for those of you who aren't into watching people beat the living crap out of one another, uh, let me just fill you in a little bit here. Ronda Rousey, uh, about seven years ago, was the number one fighter in the UFC. Her, her story is one of incredible success, actually. She became, she, she became an Olympian at the age of 14. She became the UFC champion when she was only 25 years old. She was, uh, she was in 2015, she was the third most searched person on Google. ESPN declared her to be uh, the best female athlete ever. 
She was the highest paid fighter in the UFC, male or female. And what, what people said was that she had more earning potential than LeBron James. And all of that came crashing down in 2015. Uh, in 2015, Ronda Rousey fought a woman named Holly Holm, who, who, uh, who nobody thought Holly Holm had any shot in this fight, but she, she, she knocked Ronda Rousey out. And in, in, in an interview several weeks after the fight, Ronda Rousey said this. She said, my first thought after the fight as I was sitting in the corner was, what am I anymore if I'm not the champion? I was literally sitting there thinking about killing myself. And in that exact second, I thought, I am nothing. No one cares about me anymore without this. Now, why was that so devastating? It was devastating because she didn't just lose the fight. She lost her sense of self. See, and so will you if you build your identity on anything that you do or achieve, whether it's being a successful person, whether it's being a, a good parent whose, whose kids turn out just the right way, whether it's being a, a good moral person, who, who, a just person who contributes to the good of society. See, we need an identity that can hold up against our worst failures. And the only way to get it is through an identity that you do not achieve, but you receive. An identity that is given to you instead of one that you create for yourself. And the question is, where do you get that? Who can give you that? One person. God looks at Abraham in this passage on the heels of his greatest failure. And he says, no longer will you be called Abram, which means exalted father, by the way. But he says, you will be called Abraham, which means father of many nations. Now that is a very gracious name to give someone who has done something that Abraham has just done. And then he comes to Abraham's wife in verse 15, I think, at the very end of this chapter. And he says, no longer will you be called Sarai, but you'll be called Sarah, which means princess. And I want to tell you something. God is constantly doing this throughout the Bible. He's constantly giving people new names. In Genesis 32, he comes to Jacob. Jacob means liar, deceiver which was an apt name for Jacob because he had deceived his whole family. And God comes to him and he says, no longer will you be called Jacob, but you will be called Israel, which means God will overcome. In John chapter 1, Jesus looks at one of his 12 disciples, at Simon, the one who will, who will betray him three times at the cross. And he says, no longer will you be called Simon, but you will be called Peter which means rock. God comes to all of these people who have totally blown it, and he says, you are not defined by your failure. You are defined by me. I tell you who you are. I'm the only one who can give you an identity that you don't achieve, but it is a gift. You have to receive it, and therefore it is the only identity that can actually stand up to failure. And I just want you to think about this this morning. How desperately do we need to hear something like that right now? 
This is a room full of failure. And all of our stories are different. The details of that failure is different. But here's the thing. God does not come to you and look at you and name you in light of your failure. He does not look at you and go, addict. Or anxious person. Or depressed person. Or divorcee. Or adulterer. Or sexually broken. Or sinner. No, he gives you a new name. Daughter. Son. Friend. Beloved. So he tells you who you are, but that's not the only thing. He doesn't just tell us who we are, he tells you what to do. God comes to Abraham in verse 1, and he says, I am God Almighty, that's my name. Walk before me faithfully and blameless. God tells him to walk. And walking is a, it is like a theological explosion in the Bible. It is such a significant metaphor. In Genesis 5, it says that Enoch walked with God. In Genesis 6, it says that uh, Noah walked with God. In Leviticus 26, God says, I, uh, he says, I will walk among you. I will be your God and you will be my people. And see, walking is the way that the Bible sums up what it means to have a relationship with God. Now that still sounds a little abstract. You say, well, what does it mean to, to walk with God? Bruce Walke, he's an Old Testament scholar, and he says this, he wrote a commentary on Genesis. He says this about this verse and about walking. He says, to walk before God means to orient one's entire life to God's presence, God's promises, and God's demands. God's presence, God's promises, and God's demands. Let's talk about each of those just very quickly. First, to walk with God means to orient your life to God's presence. I want you to think about the metaphor of walking with someone. It's very different from running. I like to run. I like to run with friends. You know what I don't like to do? I don't like to run with friends and talk at the same time. You can talk. I don't like to talk. Talking is the worst when you're running. You have to, you have to walk to talk. See, and you know, walking is the currency, it's the currency of intimacy. You know, emails are great. Phone calls are great. Zoom, we're tired of it, but it's great. See, but only when you walk do you get personal presence. Only when you walk can you, can you hug, can you embrace, can you hold one another in your tears. Walking is God's way of saying, I do not want a half-hearted, distance, distant relationship with you. I want intimacy. I don't want you to just believe in me. I want you to walk with me. I want you to have a sense of my presence in your life. And you say, well, how do I get that? 
pastor, help me out here. Because I'd like it, how do I get it? Well, you get it, you get it by listening to God when you read his word. You get it by talking to God when you pray. You get it by coming to church where God says he is He is present in a unique, special way when his people gather together. You get it through community groups. You get it through Christian friendships and Christian community. And you see, the reason that we need a deeper sense of God's presence is so that we can have a deeper understanding of God's promises. And that's actually the second aspect of walking with God. It's orienting your life around God's promises. You know what happens when, when like you really blow it in the Christian life? I mean, if you've ever done this, you know this. You feel like God is not present with you. You feel like he's kind of stepped away a little bit. I mean, imagine how Abraham must have been feeling for 13 years. Has God abandoned me? Does God not want a relationship with me anymore? Has he withdrawn all of these incredible promises that he's made to me? Look at what God does. He shows up and he says, Abraham, walk with me. In other words, Abraham's failure has deterred God in no way from wanting a relationship with Abraham. All this time that Abraham thought God was not present with him. God is saying, I've been here all along. I'm ready to walk with you. Nothing has changed. And I want you to notice this, that in this, in this chapter, when God shows up, he's given Abraham all these promises, you know, a child, a land. He's promised to make him into a great nation. And you know what God does in Genesis 17, when you read these verses, right after this great failure, he reminds Abraham of all of those promises. And not only that, But the promises get even bigger. See, in Genesis 12, God has promised to make Abraham into a great nation. But do you see what he says in verse 4? He says, you will be the father of many nations. God does all of this on the heels of Abraham's greatest failure. Do you know what this means? It means that there is nothing you can do It means that not even your your worst failure in life can derail God's determination to bless you. God is for you, period. Nothing can change that. That there's nothing that you can do to cause him to withdraw his love for you, his presence with you, or his promises to you. And that is so important to understand because it is only as you actually believe that that you will embrace this last aspect of walking with God, which is orienting your life around God's demands. Okay, some of you have been waiting all sermon. When are we going to get to this circumcision stuff? Here we go. Verse 9. Then God said to Abraham... As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you. The covenant you are to keep, every male among you shall be circumcised. 
You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. God says, Abraham, I'm going to give you this sign that you and I are in relationship with one another. I'm going to give you this sign that you're, you're walking with me, and I'm walking with you. And the sign is going to be circumcision. Now, now why would God, let's just, why would God make a demand like this? I mean, something so painful, so bloody, so gruesome. I mean, Abraham must have been thinking like, hey, God, how about a different sign? How about a handshake? You know, we're on the same page. We kind of know where we're going with this. Why would God demand this? Well, the first thing that you need to know is that God no longer makes this demand. Uh, The New Testament makes it clear that the Old Testament sign of circumcision, which is a sign of walking with God, being in relationship with God in the New Testament, becomes the sign of baptism. We don't have time to go into all this today because it would be like a, a theology class and I'm trying to preach a sermon. But for those of you who are interested, you can go read Romans 4, Colossians 2, 9 through 11. These are some really helpful verses that kind of help us connect the dots on this. But, but baptism is actually a really helpful thing to think about here. You know, if you've ever been here when we baptize someone, we always say the same words. And they're actually the words that Jesus tells us to say in Matthew chapter 28. Whenever we baptize someone, and I love this, we, 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 we take the water and we say, I baptize you in the name of the Father and in the name of the Son and in the name of the Holy Spirit. You see, to be baptized in God's name, you know what that means? It means that your life is now in God's hands. It means that that all of you now belongs to all of him. It is whole life surrender. It is a person saying, and this is so radically radically countercultural, it is someone saying, my freedom is found not in doing whatever I want to do, but it is found in the ways of Jesus. It is in him that I am truly liberated. It is in him that I am truly set free. And so I give myself, all of myself, to him. Now think about circumcision. God says to Abraham, I want you to cut yourself in the most intimate place to represent the fact that Every part of you, Abraham, even the most intimate parts, belong to me. See, this is God's way of saying, Abraham, there's no part of your life that's off limits to me. And this is so challenging because we are so prone to come to God and to try to partition off certain parts of our lives. It's like we, we, we treat our life like a house, and there's all these rooms, and some of the rooms we think we can put up a no trespassing sign. My, my, my young daughters right now, they have a, a sign on the room that says, off limits. I'm like, I pay for this house. I can come in here if I want to. But this is what we do with God. We say, God, I will... I'll give you everything except my money. 
I'll give you everything except my dating life or who I marry. I'll give you everything except this marriage that is so hard and so difficult and all I want to do is get out. I'll give you everything except my sexuality. I'll give you everything except my refusal to forgive this person who so deeply hurt me. So we come to God and we say, I will walk with you in this area, God, but I will not walk with you here. And you know what God says? He says it doesn't work like that. He says, you can't walk with me unless I have all of you. It's demanding. It's hard. Anyone who tells you that Christianity is easy is lying. C.S. Lewis, he he put it this way, he said, somebody told me last week, you quote C.S. Lewis a lot, and I told myself I wasn't going to quote him this week, but (laughs) this one's too good. He said, you know, Lewis was an atheist for years, but then then he came to faith in Jesus, and he said, I didn't go to Christianity to make me happy. I always knew that a bottle of port would do that. (laughs) He says, if you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. Walking with God is hard. You You know, the Christian life, it's not a short sprint. It's a long, arduous walk. It's a long journey where day in and day out, you are learning to cut off certain parts of yourself in order to follow God and to give every inch of your life to him. And here's the million dollar question. What is gonna get us to live like that? What is gonna get us to walk with God like that? How's it possible? Say, how's it possible? Well, God tells us. That's the last point. You will, never, you will never walk with God until you first see that he came to walk with you. If you look up the word walk in the Gospels, you know what you find? Jesus did a lot of walking. He walked more than anyone else. My favorite example of this is in Mark chapter 8. Jesus meets a blind man. And, and, and everyone is saying, Jesus, heal, heal our friend. Heal, heal our brother. And, you know, there are a lot of times in the Gospels where as soon as Jesus meets someone, he, he heals them on the spot. But not this time. You know what Mark says? He says that Jesus took the blind man by the hand and he walked him outside of the village. I mean, just imagine Jesus walking with this man. The tenderness, the kindness of Jesus. And then they get outside the village and it's just the two of them and Mark says that Jesus laid his hands on him and he healed him. But imagine what it must have been like to walk with Jesus in that moment. 
Imagine what it must be like to talk with him like that. See, Jesus came to walk with this man, and he came to walk with us. And do you know what he had to do to make that happen? He had to become human. You know, John 1 says this, says that the word, that's, that's talking about Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus, Jesus didn't have a body before he came into this world. He, he had to become human in order to walk. And not just human, but he had to become poor. See, rich people ride. They ride horses. They ride chariots. No, but Jesus became poor and he walked. And, and, and he had to leave the presence He had to leave the presence of the Father, this presence that he had always had, this intimacy that he had always had. And he had to leave this place where he had had a name. We, We sang about earlier, name above all names. Choirs of angels sung to him, but then he came into this world and he was a social nobody. He had no name. And he lived a perfect life, a life of whole surrender to God. He's the only one who's ever done it. There was not an ounce of failure in his life. And what did it all get him? This is what Isaiah 53 says. He was led like a a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By By oppression and judgment, he was taken away and he was cut off from the land of the living. You see, in coming to walk with us, Jesus did not just have part of himself cut. No, Isaiah says he was cut off. He didn't just have part of his body maimed. His whole body was beaten and tortured. And there is no place outside of the cross that is more gruesome, that is more bloody, that is more painful. Now, why did he do it? He did it so that we could walk with God, so that we could know him, so that we could know his presence, so that we could know his promises. So that we can know his blessing. And he did it so that he could give you a new name. A new identity. See, I said earlier, God looks at you and he says, daughter, son, friend, beloved. And if you know yourself at all, you will say, how could God say that to me? You know, if, if you've at all kind of come in touch with your own capacity to think really terrible things or to do really terrible things or to hurt people or to just not, to to walk past people on the street who have nothing to eat and nowhere to go and to just look at your phone and play a game. See, if we've at all come in touch with ourselves, we have to ask this question, how 
If, if you would all know your own failure, how could God give you a name like that? There is this great Broadway musical. It's called The, the Man of La, La Mancha. And it's about a man named Don Quixote who falls in love with a woman named Aldonza. And Aldonza has had a hard life. She is, she's a prostitute. She has been terribly mistreated by men. And despite all of the shame, all of the brokenness, all of the dirt that is literally covering her, Don Quixote falls in love with her. And this is what I love. He gives her a new name. He doesn't ask her permission. He just gives her a new name. And the new name is Dulcinea. And it means sweetness. Now what's so gripping about this story is uh, she doesn't see it. She does not see in herself what, what Don Quixote sees in her. In fact, she is furious that he keeps calling her Dulcinea. And there's this one song where they're going back and forth where he keeps calling her Dulcinea and she keeps saying, don't call me that. And she, she says this in the song. She says, take the clouds from your eyes and see me as I really am. I am no one. I am nothing. I'm only Aldonza the whore. And then he sings back to her. Dulcinea, Dulcinea, I see heaven when I see thee, Dulcinea. And thy name is like a prayer. Angels whisper, Dulcinea, Dulcinea. Dulcinea, Dulcinea, I have sought thee, sung thee, and dreamed thee. And now I have found thee. And the world shall know thy glory. Here's the Christian gospel, friends. The Christian gospel is that God sees all of the ways we are like Aldonza. He sees all of our failure, all of our flaws, all of our mess, all of our brokenness, and he calls you Dulcinea. And the reason that he can call us Dulcinea is because Jesus became like Aldonza. He became like Aldonza so that we could have a new name, a new identity that is not based on who we are or what we have done, but it is based on who he is and what he has done. And that is what this table is all about. This table is not for perfect people. It is for people who know that they are broken beyond measure. It is for people who know that they need a savior. You see, all you need to come to this table, there's one thing you need, and it is need. And God will meet you there, and he will receive you. And so he invites you to come with all of your failure and to let him love you and to name you and to call you his own. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And after he'd given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it saying, this cup 
is the cup of the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. The Apostle Paul tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, would you give us grace this morning to believe these things? Some of us, we, we look in the mirror, we look at our lives, we look at things that we've done, we look at things that have been done to us, and it just feels impossible to believe that you could ever love us like this. Would you help us this morning, maybe some of us for the very first time, to know, to receive, to believe the name that we have been given because of your son. We come only because of him. In Christ's name, amen.